0: Heavenly Father, we uh, come before You this morning. We're hoping to discover things about You from Your Word. And we pray, Lord, that You'll bless our time here and uh, always draw our thoughts and our attention to You and Your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank You for the wonderful gift that He gave us of salvation and, and peace with You. We pray in His name. Amen. Okay, we're doing a series on Old Testament survey, last week we looked at uh, the question, why should we study the Old Testament, and uh, one of my standard short replies when someone uh, is wondering why we should study the Old Testament as well, it's, it was the Bible of Jesus and the Apostles, and uh, that usually doesn't uh, allow for much of uh, a debate um, an additional thing from last week that I want to mention, I was thinking about this week, that uh, the New Testament writers all presuppose that history expresses God's will, His plan, and His purposes. So His actions in earlier history anticipate His activity in later periods. So uh, we find that there's a lot of correspondences the way God handled a certain situation in the Old Testament is the same way uh, it's handled in the New Testament. Uh, yes. Could you repeat that statement? History expresses. Yeah. History expresses God's will, plan, and purposes. And uh, we we find correspondence. one that just leaps to mind is. You know, in Joshua chapter 7 we have the story of Achan who uh, was not supposed to have taken any spoil from the destruction of Jericho. And um, he and his family were brought before the um, the assembly of Israelites and at the end of that process, Achan and his family were stoned to death. Uh I see a correspondence with uh, what happened in the New Testament book of Acts when uh, it was the couple that uh, Ananias and Sapphira uh, did something that amounted to a lie to the Holy Spirit, and at the end of uh, a uh, judgment process, the Holy Spirit struck them dead. So, you know, God takes sin seriously. God took sin seriously in the Old Testament. He continues to take sin seriously in the new testament so we expect god uh to not change his character he's that kind of god he's he uh, is the same yesterday today and tomorrow and uh, the way god acted in the past and is very similar to the way he acts in the present because his character has not changed um Keith, last week, uh, gave a wonderful uh, support to my material because he spoke from the book of Malachi. And uh, I couldn't have coordinated it better if if we had discussed this, but he showed how that in the book of Malachi, God hates divorce. Do you think he's changed his opinion on that? No. The book of Malachi, Malachi is as relevant to us today as it was to the Israelites of days gone by. When we get to know God's character as revealed in the Old Testament, then we come to know His character in the present as well. The Old Testament focuses more on God the Father. The New Testament focuses more on Jesus uh, the Son. And it's interesting to note uh, Jesus... uh, what he tried to communicate to the people, that he always glorified the Father. So uh, we're now in the days when we know about Jesus and what he did for us, but that should not diminish our interest in knowing the Father that Jesus always sought to glorify. Now we began looking at Lecture 2 last uh, week, and um, we noted that uh, the word Bible comes from a Greek word, biblos. it just means books, but, you know, we talk about uh, the, when we say the president, we're talking about the man in the White House. When we talk about the governor, and there are 50 governors, we're talking about the one that's in Iowa, for us anyways, the people in Wisconsin, it would be the governor in Wisconsin. So when we talk about the book, we're talking about the book of books, uh, the one book that has impacted history more than any other. Uh, the Jews, even down to today, call it call the Old Testament their Tanakh. Of course, since they don't accept the New Testament, to use the words Old Testament and New Testament uh, would be uh, strange for them. A few Jews, I think, are offended. Uh, and actually, the way we talk about the Old Testament within uh, scholarly circles right now, it's a, it's a big uh, open question. How are we going to talk about the Old Testament and try not to offend Jews, but at the same time uh, demonstrate that for us, the Old and New Testaments make up our Bible? Uh, that Tanakh, uh, an acronym, uh, comes from Torah, uh, which is the five books of Moses, Law or Instruction, neviim the prophets the prophets and ketuvim the writings so the tnk for them makes uh, tanakh uh, in luke 24:44 we see evidence of this threefold division in the times of jesus however uh, this is the only place in the new testament where we see uh, the law of moses the torah the prophets and the psalms is the book that is at the head of the collection of the writings Most of the time, the New Testament uses a much shorter uh, reference. Uh, The Bible for them is the Law and the Prophets. Now, here we have the uh, layout of those different sections. And uh, I should mention that uh, the Bible in the form of a book begins in the 4th century A.D. Before that, everything was on scrolls, rolls. So, uh, you'll find different order of the books of the Bible if you're looking at uh, our modern Bibles. Um, I've been doing some teaching in the Ukraine and their Bible translation history it kind of is worked through the Septuagint. So, some of their books are in a, a different order. Actually, Roman Catholics uh, have uh, some different titles. Uh, they talk about... 1st uh, and 2nd Samuel, if I'm not mistaken here, are called 1st uh, and 2nd Kingdoms, and then 1st and 2nd Kings are called 3rd and 4th Kingdoms. That's the way the uh, Septuagint handles it as well. So you see there are some differences that don't have anything to do with inspiration, don't have anything to do with the, uh, uh, the Bible being the Word of God. They're just ways of organizing the material. Now, um, I want to... Advance here a little bit. Not getting any response. Okay. Um, the Old Testament means a covenant. And um, a covenant is uh, a promise or a binding agreement between two parties. Uh, this is an old, one of those old King James words. Uh, Testament... Uh, also refers to uh, the Old Testament, New Testament and testament uh, the way in which we use that uh, is probably similar to the way we talk about a last will and testament you know if you 're if you 're writing your will that 's the last thing you want to say to your heirs uh, which they 'll learn about either before or after you 've passed on so this is uh a binding agreement. And we have a number of uh, covenants in the Old Testament. We have uh, the covenant that God made with Noah in Genesis 9. And uh, I was reminded of that covenant this week. I went out for a walk after the rain and there was beautiful rainbow in the sky. And I was reminded that uh, God promised in the Noahic covenant to to never destroy the world by flood again so we have an ongoing reminder of the Noahic covenant the Abrahamic covenant I have uh noted here that it's in Genesis 12 uh there are other aspects of it, aspects in Genesis 15 Genesis 17 but the passage in Genesis 12 is cited by Paul in Romans chapter 4 and uh He makes an important theological point that um, the covenant with Abraham and Abraham's righteousness that was accounted to him by faith came before the uh, initiation of circumcision, which doesn't come until, I believe it's in chapter 17. So Abraham's faith precedes uh, circumcision. This is very important. For Paul teaching Jews that circumcision is a kind of a works thing that, that doesn't put you in right relationship with God. It's the faith in your heart that makes a difference. Then we move on into Exodus. God uh, uh, allowed Israel to go down into Egypt. And for more than 400 years, uh, they lived there, multiplied, multiplied, Uh, 75 people went down to Egypt and uh, approximately 3 million came up out of uh, Egypt in the days of the Exodus. And this uh, Mosaic covenant was the covenant that God made with his people when they arrived at Mount Sinai. And we have this covenant in, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. That's one form of the covenant. And then we have a second form in Deuteronomy Actually, the word Deuteronomy uh, comes from two uh, Latin words. Uh, Latin or Greek, forget. Um, probably the same in both languages. Um, Deutero, of course, is the second, and nomos uh, means the law. So Deuteronomy is the second law uh, or the second covenant. It's the same material structured in a slightly different way. But the, the form of that covenant, is uh, known from ancient times uh, what, what the form is called a suzerain vassal treaty. And when we get into Deuteronomy, I'm going to spend a little time uh, discussing that because it's very important. Uh, it'll help us to understand the, the, the many laws that make up that treaty, and it'll help us to understand uh, actually the way God interacted with His people throughout the uh, history of Israel. A suzerain is the conqueror. A vassal is the one who is conquered. And in the ancient world, uh, a lot of times, one king would conquer another. So the conquering king would be the suzerain. He has a right to say, look, this is the way you're, we will relate to one another. And uh, you will have to pay me annual tribute. It's one thing that's very typical in a suzerain-vassal treaty. And that comes into the Mosaic Covenant as the tithe. Uh, Tithe is the annual tribute that uh, people pay to the king. Now, uh, the king is God, Yahweh, um, and um, he has a right to demand things of his people in order to maintain the relationship. Why? Not because he conquered them, but because he rescued them from uh, from a, a despotic uh, and cruel leader in Egypt. So he has a right to ask them to enter into this covenant. And we'll look at Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, which give a broad outline uh, to show that it was the intention of this covenant for God to bless His people and to establish uh, a very good working relationship uh, with them. A lot of benefits came to them because of the covenant, but at the same time, they were obligated to follow the rules of that covenant. And um, we'll see that the sad story is that uh, there's a long history of them not holding up their part of the covenant. Uh, another important covenant is the Davidic covenant in Second Samuel 7. This is not a suzerain vassal Covenant. This is a royal grant uh, covenant. We'll study a little bit of what that means, Uh, but basically, uh, it's a reward for faithful service. And this is an extremely important covenant because it lays the framework for the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. And David, uh, especially in First and Second Chronicles, is viewed as the ideal king, the model king, and we'll see how Jesus Christ comes along uh, and uh, actually fulfills the model. Now, of course, David wasn't perfect. The Bible never pretends that he was perfect. Uh, he's guilty of adultery. He's guilty of uh, murder. But he had a heart for the, God, for the Lord of Israel. When uh, those Philistines start uh, shooting their mouths off and cursing God... That really, you know, gets his goat, and he has faith to believe that his God is mightier than any other God, and he'll take on that giant and uh, fight for the name of, for the good name of his God. Uh, he also has a heart uh, that uh, melts, and he becomes convicted of his sin, and uh, he confesses his sin. Uh, Psalm thirty-two, I. I preached time after time after time is a wonderful psalm that talks about forgiveness and confession and what what that all means. So uh, Davidic covenant, very important covenant. And then we uh, get into the time of Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached just before the the fall of Jerusalem and Judah, just before the exile into Babylon, and uh, in the Jeremiah's new covenant, uh, leading up to this, Jeremiah has rehearsed all of the hist- long history of sin of God's people, and basically uh, communicates that that Mosaic covenant didn't work. The reason is uh, the people's sin. Uh, I don't know if we have this verse up. No, we don't have it. But I'll read. Jeremiah 31-34 for you. And it says this, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice that it's both Israel and Judah here. Uh, of course, Israel had fallen more than 100 years earlier, but he's talking here about the whole family. And he says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, not like the Mosaic Covenant, when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, even though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Actually, you know, with these covenants, uh, God views these covenants just like a marriage relationship. And uh, actually, we still talk about the marriage covenant, and we use the same terminology. And uh, the book of Hosea, the minor prophet Hosea, uh, develops a metaphor where he talks about this husband-wife relationship between God and Israel and uh, demonstrates God's faithfulness and the people's, uh, actually the people's prostitution in the fact that they went and served all kinds of foreign idols now they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them declares the Lord this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time declares the Lord and notice he says after that time in other words this is a future thing and he says I'll put my law in their in their minds I'll write it on their hearts I will be their God and they will be my people no longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know Me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will, and this is important, I will forgive the wickedness, their wickedness and remember their sins no more. So there are two important aspects of this uh, new covenant. One is God's law written on people's hearts rather than in stone tablets or in a book somewhere, that law becomes a living law within the hearts of people. And then number two, this new covenant has a provision for forgiveness. And Jeremiah and Ezekiel both uh, demonstrate to the people that, number one, the, the exile, the destruction of Jerusalem... That fell upon the people was a result of two things. One was hundreds and hundreds of years of God's people being unfaithful to Him. It, excuse me, Israel and Judah uh, for more than uh, four or five hundred. Actually, Ezekiel takes it right back to the um, the wilderness wandering wandering period. Uh, he speaks of that as as uh, the honeymoon between God and His people. And he, he points out that right back on the honeymoon you were already disobedient to me. You are already involved in idolatry. And um, so uh, Jeremiah is making it clear that number one, there's a long history of, of uh, being unfaithful. And number two, they both make the point to their people that it's not because of what your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did. It's also because of what you do and are doing that this judgment is falling. So, okay, we have uh, then um, this new covenant which um, Jesus in Matthew 26 institutes. And let me just... Quickly read Matthew 26, verses 26 through 28. And it says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to His disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is My body. Then He took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, it, all of you. This is My blood of the covenant. Uh, Some translations... Uh, we'll say, blood of the New Covenant, which is poured out for many for, important, the forgiveness of sins. So, uh, uh, a very large number of scholars believe that Jesus was actually instituting Jeremiah's New co- Covenant. So, we see another connection between the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant. Now, uh, the let's... Uh, move on to another term now Pentateuch that is uh, that refers to the books of Moses the first five books of the Bible are uh, attributed to the authorship of Moses and the word Pentateuch comes from uh, the Greek word Penta meaning five you're all familiar with that and then Tukos means uh, book or books so Pentateuch five books and Uh, It refers to Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And uh, Moses uh, lived in the 15th century B.C. before Christ. And these books are mainly historical narrative that begins with the creation, takes us up to the time just before people go into the promised land, And let me give you a rapid overview of the Pentateuch. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the walk through the Bible uh, material. I never have. But how about a show of hands? There's people who have gone through that walk through the Bible material. Okay, probably about 25%. And as I understand it, you learn uh, uh, devices, memory devices, to help you think through uh, the think through the Bible. I think that's great. In fact, you'll see in this uh, material in the end, you have uh, three tables. Uh, and what I've tried to do there is summarize the the Old Testament historical period, because you'll better understand some of the books if you can appreciate the historical context in which they were written. So, the Pentateuch deals with creation, the fall of mankind from grace, an expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, Cain's murder of his brother Abel, increase of humans on the earth, Noah's flood, the lives of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then the descent of Joseph and his family into Egypt, 430 years later, the exodus from Egypt, the journey through the wilderness, the giving of the Ten Commandments and the Law of Moses on Mount Sinai, the people's lack of faith to enter the Promised Land, and then finally the transfer of leadership from Moses to Joshua and the death of Moses. Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses. Joshua picks up right where Deuteronomy leaves off and Joshua begins... Uh, I believe it begins now after the death of Moses. Dot dot dot. Uh, so there's a, a, a continuation there. That takes us into the former prophets, and I'm going to back up to our graph. Oops, back up. So we get, we see the former prophets: Joshua, judges, Samuel, and kings. These are also called the non-writing prophets because their deeds are recorded, but not necessarily by their own hand. For instance, uh, Joshua and Samuel; these are books that uh, talk about the lives of Joshua and Samuel, uh, but are not were not probably not written by uh, either of these two. Um, I've personally believe that Joshua was written by a contemporary of uh, Joshua uh, because some of the language there is eyewitness testimony language. We did this. We did that. Uh, things happened that continue right down to our day, right up to this day. And he talks about Rahab the harlot that was taken out of Jericho. He says she and her family live among us right down to the day. So I believe it was written by an eyewitness, but not necessarily Joshua. It speaks about Joshua. It's easier to argue that Samuel was not written by Samuel because right in the middle of the book you have Samuel's death and then a lot more material after that. So if Samuel is writing that last part, he was quite the prophet indeed to be able to write about his death and historical things that happened after his death. Uh, not impossible. We have a miracle working God, but uh, I believe it was written by another person. Non-writing prophets. Uh, this, is, this, is, this material is just raw history. I should say it's theological history. It's not designed to tell us all the world events during that period. It focuses on God's people and how they are uh, responding to God. Then we get into the latter prophets. These are called the writing prophets because Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets, uh, the the name that's at the title of the book is probably, in almost all cases, the author of the book. Isaiah is the author of the book, his 66 chapters. And uh, this is material that... uh, was his prophecies throughout the entire uh, period of his lifetime. And when you read uh, Isaiah, uh, it's not a narrative, it's a collection of prophecies. Same thing with uh, Jeremiah and Ezekiel. Um, the prophets were the spokesmen of God to the people of Israel. And when we think about a prophet, we tend to focus on predictive prophecy. They were talking about things in the future. Certainly Isaiah did just that. Uh, Isaiah is cited uh, in the New Testament frequently and um, in a manner that says, hey, this is what Isaiah prophesied and now it's coming to pass. So Isaiah did uh, look forward into the future, probably the most uh, cited um, chapter from Isaiah that we're familiar with would be Isaiah 53. A very detailed description of Jesus' uh, suffering and uh, his final days. So they did predict about things that would happen in the future, but a prophet, first and foremost, is a spokesman for God. And quite often the prophet comes to uh, tell the people what they're not doing right. Uh, sometimes it's it's bitter condemnation, because you sinned. This judgment's going to fall upon you. Uh, but they're not limiting themselves to judgment and to accusations. They also, uh, I think, almost without exceptions, the prophets always get in sections that say, "Wait a minute, you know, after your period of punishment, there's a brighter future ahead. Days are coming." that will be better than these days. God judges sin, but He also forgives. And it's been His intention since the Garden of Eden to bless His people. Um, Now, let me see here. latter prophets, major prophets are Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. They uh, recorded their prophesies over the course of a lifetime, And uh, these are called major prophets because these three books are really long. Um, Isaiah 66 chapters, Jeremiah 52 chapters, Ezekiel 48 chapters. Um, The longest of the 12 minor prophets are uh, Zechariah and Hosea 14 chapters. So the minor prophets aren't minor in terms of their message but minor in terms of the number of uh, uh, chapters that uh, they left for us. The 12 minor prophets address specific problems or sins committed by God's people. I already mentioned that Hosea deals with the unfaithfulness of Israel uh, under the metaphor of uh, prostitution. Jonah, for instance, deals with Uh, Israel's mission to go tell the nations about Yahweh, about God. And then other prophets deal with judgments of God on his people uh, in various ways. Uh, God judges his people with a plague of locusts, with an earthquake, or with uh, an unrighteous nation that comes and uh, conquers uh, Israel and Judah. That brings us up to the poetical books, Psalms, Proverbs, and Job. And these are written in the form of poetry. When we get to those books, we'll discuss uh, Hebrew, what Hebrew poetry uh, is in terms of structure. Um, And we're very familiar with Psalms because this is the hymn book of Israel. And it's a collection that spans the period from Moses at least up to the exile. Perhaps even uh, we have... Maybe some Psalms from the post exilic period. Psalm 90 uh, is attributed to Moses. And Psalm 137 uh, deals with uh, the people arriving in exile in Babylon. And uh, actually, was popularized some years ago by a group called Boney M uh, by the rivers of Babylon. I won't sing it all. Uh, you won't have to leave the room now. Um, but uh, you see that it spans a broad period, 150 psalms, individual psalms. And uh, these psalms continue to have an impact on our worship right down to today. So many of our hymns are uh, variations on uh, particular psalms. Um, they are written in poetry. Proverbs as well as is, is poetry. These are practical things about how to live uh, in a happy and prosperous way within the world that God created. And when we read the Proverbs, we, we uh, think, wait a minute, these are things that don't apply just to God's people. These are things that are true even for people who don't worship God. Uh, one of the Proverbs says, a soft answer turns away wrath. Does it turn away wrath only for God's people? No, it turns away wrath from everyone. It's good uh, uh, practice when you're getting in an argument to back up and say, maybe I shouldn't say that bitter thing that I'm thinking right at this moment. Maybe a soft answer would be the cure in this moment. Um, And then Psalms, Proverbs, Job, 42 chapters, a very long poem with uh, a little bit of narrative at the beginning and the end. Then we get into the five roles and uh, we don't really know why. Um, you know, there's, there's no single principle that holds this group together. Uh, Ruth and Esther uh, tell us about two faithful women and um, Ruth was probably originally part of the book of, Rudge, of, of Judges. In fact, Ruth starts off, It happened in the days of the judges. That's the very first uh, sentence. So it makes that connection there. And uh, Esther was from the exilic period, was probably read in homes during the festival of Purim. The book of Lamentations is a series of five poems that lament the fall of Jerusalem, probably written by an eyewitness. Um, And it's been attributed to the prophet Jeremiah may well indeed have been written by Jeremiah. Ecclesiastes is a very highly structured book. Uh, some might call it poetry; others might say, "No, it's not poetry. It's just a well-structured book." But um, it uh, also gives us some wisdom lessons about how to view life, this life that God has given us. And then, Song of Psalms is a Song of Songs is a dramatic poem which celebrates the wonders of marital love. Um, You know, when we get to Valentine's Day, everybody turns to 1 Corinthians 13, but I think it's valid to turn to uh, Song of Solomon as well. uh, It shows that God created men and women to enjoy each other. And then uh, we have uh, for the Jews this last collection Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. Um, and in, in Chronicles, we get a second history of Israel. And Chronicles starts out with Adam and brings us up to the period of ex- exile. It's a, a, and Joshua, well, actually, the Pentateuch, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings is one history of Israel Chronicles and Ezra-Nehemiah, that's another history of Israel, written from two different perspectives. There's different uh, emphases, and we'll talk about those when we focus on those books. I have until... I have 15 or 20 minutes? Oh, oh, oh. Uh, okay. Um, very quickly here... Uh, I want to mention that, actually, I'll just introduce the, t- the topic and then we'll get into it in more detail next week, or in two weeks, I'm out of town next week. Um, the question of chronology, you know, we work day-to-day on what's called a, an absolute chrono- chronology uh, that has its Zero point with the birth of Jesus Christ. And when we read the Bible, you know, when you read about King Uzziah, it doesn't say uh, King Uzziah started to reign in the year X BC. Uh, it doesn't work off this absolute chronology. Uh, and when we try to read the Bible and put it in its chronological uh, setting, uh, we have some problems. Well, uh, there have been people that have tried to wrestle with Bible chronology for years and years and one of them was uh, Bishop James Usher that he was a professor of theology at Trinity College in Dublin and he calculated the date of creation as being October 23rd, 4004 B.C. Now, the... uh, philosophy or the idea that he was working off here was that the earth's potential duration would be 6,000 years, uh, 4,000 before the birth of Christ and 2,000 after. He was picking up on 2 Peter three eight, which says, one day is with the Lord as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. And he, the, it was very popular thinking those days that uh, human history would follow the pattern of the creative week. Six days and then coming into a period of rest. And uh, it was also known at that time that our calendars were off in terms of the birth of Christ. Christ actually was born in 4 B.C. rather than zero. So 4,000 starting from minus... That gives us 4004 B.C. as the date of uh, creation. And why he chose October 23, I have no idea. Uh, And I'm suspicious (laughs) for this reason. Uh, We know that Adam and Eve were created in that first creative week. And it had to be before October because Adam and Eve were created before the fall. Good, that's the reaction I was hoping to get. (laughs) So it had to be spring or summer. Okay. Uh, Now, we'll get into chronology in uh, the following uh, sessions. Not in a a great deal of detail, but um, various scholars have uh, figured out things from studying other ancient civilizations. We have uh, the Assyrians, for instance, Uh, had a practice where each year they would name that year uh, after um, some important man that had something happened during that year, similar to you know time magazine has their man of the year it, for the Assyrians, each year was named by an individual and uh, um, in the year um, seven sixty three b c This was called the year of Bur-Sagali. In that man's year, there was an eclipse, eclipse of the sun. And astronomers now can date that year very precisely, 763 B.C. And then uh, biblical scholars, comparing with these other ancient records, uh, have been able to determine the time of King Ahab, the time of King Hezekiah, with great accuracy, and then they worked out a a nice system of chronology. We'll get into these tables next time, tables A, B, and C. And my purpose here is that you get a, a broad overview of history. And if you'll notice in tables B and C, I've put in here as well the different prophets. Uh, table B we have uh, the prophet Elijah uh, ministered more or less in eight sixty five b c uh, then elisha Obadiah these bold uh, these bold titles are the prophets and then we want to study the Old Testament chronologically so after we especially after we get out of uh, get beyond first and second kings we will study the prophets chronologically and not by the order that's in our Bible. Uh, for me, that makes more sense to try and understand, for instance, Malachi. You know, We had some good introductory material to give us the setting of Malachi and to understand what's happening with God's people when Malachi gives them uh, this message. So that's the way we'll attack that. Thank you for your attention and uh, see you in a couple weeks.